one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1004 for the week of Monday, April 30th, 2018. Yes, we took ourselves a spring break, woohoo! And uh, we are now back and bringing you new episodes. And joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Bright-eyed and kind of bushy-tailed, so we're ready to, to rock and roll. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. Oh, yes, we do. And uh, here's a voice you may not have heard in a while. Welcome back to the show, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass. Welcome back. Hey, everybody. It's great to be back. Uh, my hiatus has been going well, <laughs> but it's really good to be back on here with you guys. We're glad to have you back, and we're glad you're able to take a little time away from your music to join us for this episode, too. Spoilers. All right. Uh, so while we were gone for the last month, of course, we missed one episode. That's two weeks and we missed a lot of news going four weeks without one. Holy moly. So let's uh, jump into some of the more recent stuff. And of course, we begin with our launch roundup and we'll begin things off with SpaceX. And uh, this one's also a NASA mission. SpaceX launching a Falcon 9 rocket out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Launch Complex 40. That launch taking place April 18th with TESS. TESS, in case you're unaware, is going to help find exoplanets. It stands for the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, one of the smallest things ever launched by a Falcon 9, but it still made it safely into orbit, and the first stage once again returning back to landings on a barge in the ocean. But most importantly, TESS is on its way and will very soon begin studying and looking for exoplanets, that is, planets outside of our solar system. Yeah, so our test, according to the uh, to the website, um, will be uh, looking at uh, stars and and planets that will be about anywhere between thirty to one hundred times brighter than those surveyed by uh, its predecessor Kepler, and uh, tests should be go ahead and characterize observations made and and so on. This is really really the successor to to Kepler. And it should be able to go ahead and, and really, really give us a much more better picture of what's going on out there as far as uh, exoplanets. I, I'm, it still blows my, uh, my mind when I think about this. Uh, back when I was in high school, we didn't even know if for sure if there were planets orbiting other stars. Uh, today, uh, we have a huge catalog of planets that orbit other stars and Tess is going to help us try to see if there may be signs of life possibly 
in you know in and around those planets now by by life i'm not talking about uh you know take me to your leader kind of stuff i'm talking about if conditions on these worlds might be able to support life to go ahead and confirm that that's going to be a, a long haul but at least we'll have some some clues and and some data to go ahead and help us out a little bit um to try to determine whether whether or not there is that, that life does exist on any of these worlds and the big thing with this is even though its main goal is not to find life, the big thing is finding planets either similar in size to Earth or ones in the Goldilocks zone. So right. planets that would fit within the right distance away from its star, depending on size and temperature, that it might contain life. So while it's not directly looking for signs of life, part of its mission will help us possibly understand if there is a shot at life out there. Well, and that's the thing is it's actually a big part of it is it's looking for targets for the future. It's looking for stars and possible earth size and super earth size planets that are worth looking at with future things like the James Webb telescope, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of almost like, I see it almost as like a bridge mission because it's doing something that we've been doing with Kepler. It's continuing that process. Okay, Sawyer's going to love that I mentioned this, but in Bake Sale for NASA, I talk about how um, we learn to look for answers to questions that in the past we didn't even know to ask. And to the way that I see it is TESS is sort of, it's trying to find the right questions for us to ask in the future. That's probably the best way to put it. I mean, that's the big thing with TESS, and it's now on its way, and uh, congratulations to NASA and SpaceX on that successful launch. Sticking with SpaceX a little bit, earlier this month, uh, CRS-14, the 14th SpaceX resupply mission to the International Space Station, took off on April 2nd. It was scheduled to land back on Earth by the time that we were recording this, which is currently May 2nd. However, due to weather at the recovery site, that is now pushed to this upcoming Saturday. In case you're wondering, the date, that is 5-5, May 5th. And SpaceX's Dragon capsule is right now the only commercial resupply vehicle capable of down mass or being able to bring back down large quantities of science experiments and supplies and other things that would otherwise just burn up in the atmosphere. So that's why weather is actually important with this one. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and add too, Sawyer, and uh, the space station will not be unoccupied very long with, with a cargo mission. Um, OA-9, uh, which is, uh, is scheduled to launch from uh, Wallops Flight Facility, I believe May 20th. So uh, there, it's still going to be awfully busy on the ISS uh, once uh, once uh, Cygnus arrives and and gets uh, things going. But yeah, the the whole reason why is you don't want to lose that that cargo on on board the Dragon, and you know to to splash down choppy water, you don't want to run that risk. So uh, there, there's a lot of science return on board the spacecraft, and you just don't want to see anything happen to it. So it was a prudent move to delay until the waters were in a better you know condition to go ahead and guarantee a good recovery uh, exactly and again you are correct may 20th 2018 is the current scheduled launch date for oa9 or as it's being called technically oa9e since it is an extension of the contract there right uh that will be out of Wald's flight facility uh launch pad 0a in virginia 
So again, the space station, uh, not unoccupied for long, especially with their full crew up there now as well. And I'll go ahead and just interject. Uh, that's going to happen at 5.04 in the morning. So if you're anywhere in and around the eastern seaboard at that time, you might want to go ahead. And if if you're here in like the, the New York area, you might want to go ahead and look uh Look to your south and uh, and see if you can see it. Uh, you should be able to if if the uh, weather conditions are, uh, are are favorable. With the right weather, I have seen it both north and south. I've seen it as far north as central New York and as far south as northern Florida, southern Georgia. So yeah. it's a wide range. As long as you're near the coast, pretty much anywhere on the East Coast, you have a very good chance of seeing it. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Definitely, definitely. So we've got that, uh, and we should point out that SpaceX does have another upcoming launch, uh, and it is scheduled to launch a European-built satellite for Bangladesh called Bangabandu-1, and boy, that is fun to say. Uh, what's important about this is not my pronunciation, but what is important about this is two things. First off, uh, this will be the first launch from Launch Complex 39A since February when a Falcon Heavy took the launch pad. And secondly, this will be the first launch of what is being called a Block 5 Falcon 9. Now, we've talked a little bit about the blocks in the past, and the blocks are basically the, their way of saying version. So as they change the different versions of the Falcon, they call them different blocks. This one is scheduled to be the final block of the Falcon 9. In other words, Block 5 is the last and final one. So this will be a brand new vehicle, and after that, they plan to pretty much only land and reuse these Block 5s. Uh, and this one is also scheduled to land on a booster in the ocean as well. So, sorry, just to interject, this will also be the vehicle that's going to be carrying the Crew Dragon, if then. That is correct, yep. right. The Block 5 is going to incorporate all changes needed to meet NASA's safety requirements for launches with humans. Mm -hmm. So this is the final hurrah for changes to the Falcon 9. So that includes the one-piece-made grid fins, uh, that includes better performance, and in theory, it's supposed to make it cheaper. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But uh, again, they will plan to reuse all the first stage boosters now from these Block 5s, which is why, if you're wondering why the launches recently haven't had landings, that's pretty much why, because they're not really planning on reusing those Block 4s or 3s anymore. Out with the old, in with the new. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and always improving. Uh, so in addition to that, theirs is scheduled to land on a barge out in the ocean. Uh, another rocket also performing a landing. Admittedly, this one's suborbital, but still absolutely 100% worth mentioning. And that was another test flight for Blue Origin, the company owned by Jeff Bezos, who is the owner of Amazon, in case you're unaware. Uh, he successfully launched for the eighth time his new Shepard vehicle, topped with a capsule. On board was a bunch of science experiments and a dummy named... Mannequin Skywalker. Yep, that dummy is wired. It's supposed to go ahead and, and give data to find out what a human being would would uh, be experiencing inside the spacecraft. And eventually what they want to do is start flying people, but they haven't really, really put a timetable on, on that yet. They're probably going to sit there and really, really sift through the data that uh, Mr. Skywalker there gave them. And uh, uh, really make sure that, uh, uh, you know, the thing is designed and is accelerating the way they want it to. So, you know, there isn't a lot of stress on, on folks inside and so on. Because the game plan really is to start flying tourists to go on a 15-minute flight similar to the one that Alan Shepard flew back on May 5th 
1961. And we wonder how it got the name New Shepherd. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I got to just say that, you know, if you look back at those early days of the space program and you look at today and you look at things like the just the technology of this mannequin Skywalker, <laughs> um, being able to have that instead of, say, oh, sending animals <laughs> um, to space to test spacecraft and things like that. I, it, you know, it, it's really easy we, to get lost in all the new rockets, all the new... I mean, we were just talking about new technology in rocketry. And it's really easy to get lost in that and forget that technology such as this is also advancing our entire cause of spaceflight. Having this ability to send, like, basically a robotic dummy that can, you know, take so many more readings than we could even get from an actual human in many cases. And also that means less wires and probes and less awkward places. Yes, right? <laughs> anyway, I just want to I, I just want to, you know, give a little like round of applause to the people who who make all of that kind of stuff, you know, obviously it's used in all kinds of technology and testing of, you know, safety for all kinds of things that, you know, we use all the time and uh it, it's just it's very cool it's amazing to how the technology isn't just at the top end when it comes to space it's like there's amazing advances happening all the way down the line absolutely and again uh, going with the theme of reusability now in space and some we'll continue to talk about um this was the second launch of the rocket itself the new shepherd this was also a reflight of the capsule, if I recall correctly, on board as well. And uh, again, they successfully landed that stage. Their previous one, they had flown five times and then retired. Uh, so they have the new Shepard, which will be the space touristy one, which will do suborbital hops. And then there's also the new Glenn, which is being worked on for larger missions. And I do just want to add, last time I was at the Kennedy Space Center for Falcon Heavy, I drove by the new Blue Origin facility that they have there just outside the gates near the visitor complex. If you ever go down to the Kennedy Space Center visitor complex, make it a point to drive by that little road right before you get to the visitor complex, and you'll see the entire Blue Origin facility. When I was there, they actually had some of their doors slightly open, so I may or may not have driven on the grass super slow to look inside, <laughs> but the facility is huge and it's spectacular, and there's a lot of good work being done there as well as at their launch site out in West Texas. Mm -hmm. well, don't worry, sir. They can tear up my fingernails. I won't talk. Good, and now I'll never be allowed back to Kennedy Space Center after giving that, so hashtag don't tell NASA. <laughs> but yes, again, a congratulations to them. And while we're talking about all these other space agencies, we can't forget United Launch Alliance, who also successfully had a launch within the last month, and that was AFSpace 11, AFSPC. Of course, it's an acronym. Uh, that launched on April 14th successfully, also out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Launch Complex 41. That was an Atlas V 541 rocket meaning five-meter fairing, four solid rocket boosters, and one second-stage engine. Yeah, they're making it look easy. They're on a string over there, and I, I usually don't like talking about safety records and things like that because you're only as good as your last launch. But, um, I mean, they are... ULA is just turning into one boringly reliable uh, operation over there, especially with the Atlas V. I mean, they, they seem to have gotten that vehicle down to a science, and I, I, I dare say it's probably, at this point, the most reliable booster on the planet. They're doing that thing that I keep saying, like, I'll know that space has really hit its stride, like, fully, like, 
we keep talking about the growing of like commercial space and more people are launching all kinds of things all over the world. Um, but when I'll know that it's really work a day is when like everybody is like ULA launching Atlas fives. <laughs> That's how I always think of it because it has become this thing that they're just, they're really good at just getting it done. And, uh, it, it you know it's pretty amazing. I mean SpaceX is almost there, but uh, they've had their, yeah. their, their they've had their growing pains too. But so far, in uh, uh, ULA is probably the the, the Cadillac of the uh, uh, space launch services at least here in the United States. Well, they combined an awful lot of experience and then got years of experience together. So mm -hmm. it's you know that is a winning combo. I mean it's easy to you know rah rah all the new guys, but there is something to be said for experience and institutional memory and all of that stuff too. <laughs> yep, as PJ O'Rourke wrote, "Age and guile beat youth, innocence, and a bad haircut." <laughs> 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 and speaking of a uh, new haircut, I just have to point out that the ULA new launch broadcast looked spectacular. They had new graphics. It was clean and simple. Blue Origin, I'd never seen one of their webcasts before. Their information that they had on the screen was great. It was clear. It was easy to follow. Admittedly, at one point, the graphic was kind of covering the rocket, but overall, it was still beautifully produced. And SpaceX has even upped their game, too. They've gotten in such a groove with it, with splitting the cameras and the different data feeds and... I have to admit, if we, I was saying this before we started recording, we've gone from a space race to a space webcast race and that they all keep trying to outdo each other. And the beneficiaries really are the folks that are like us that have to come back to all of you and report it, but also the folks that take their time out and watch these things because you get a lot more data in front of you. There's a lot more information in front of you. Um, even NASA, to, to a degree, is, is up their game too. Um, so... Uh, again, the big winner here is, is the folks that uh, pay attention to these things and, you know, folks like, well, us that go ahead and try to bring this, this information to you. So hats off to everybody. It's going to be interesting to see how this progresses down the road. But so far, it's, it's been quite good. They've been really, really up in their game. Oh, absolutely. And again, now, if you've ever wanted to watch one of these launches, I think these new live streams are the way to do it because... If you're someone who's really into it, you can read it and go, oh, I know exactly what that acronym is, what moment's coming up. And if you're still new to it, you know, all the little things are explained really well by the people on air and the graphics kind of give you a good clue as to where everything is. So whether you're a huge space geek or you're just venturing into it for the first time, I think it has <laughs> they've really all made it so simple to understand. And for those of you that want the really technical stuff. You get all that, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you want to take that deep dive, it's there. But if you want to go ahead and just just f figure out what the heck is going on here, like if you really didn't know what, you know, made engine cutoff was or anything like that, they've got a full explanation of that and all of the uh, the uh, the vehicle uh, uh, stages as, as, as things go. So, again, congratulations to everybody. And I, I mean that sincerely uh, from from ULA, SpaceX, uh Blue Origin all the way all the way down the line. You guys are, are doing a bang up job. Absolutely. I mean, even uh, what was it? Rocket Lab when they did their test was still yeah. pretty good too. Yeah, Rocket Lab was really good. So, um, and they've got a launch coming up too. I think um, their first paying paying gig sometime this month in May. So watch out for that too. Don't forget the European Space Agency. They've got their missions going on. They had uh, a Sentinel launch as part of their right kind of their network of those and again that webcast too they're up in their game as well everyone is i think the only one that's still slacking a little is roscosmos so 
Yeah, well, pick your game up. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. But uh, yeah, to <laughs> to go ahead and and just just throw in a a tidbit of news. I was just looking at uh, at something. Looks like uh, the UKSA is also talking about now getting their own GPS network on. They're still not sure if they want to participate in in uh, the Galileo satellites, and I think it's due to the uh, infamous uh, Brexit. Uh, they're they're talking about possibly getting their own uh, GPS uh, system up and going, which means that there's going to be you know more satellites up there and more opportunities to uh, to get into you know to, for launch services to get involved with that. So watch. Absolutely, there's a lot to keep an eye out for. Uh, and there is one more launch that we're going to talk about. We're going to hold off on that for just a minute because first we want to talk about uh, some changes of the guard at NASA. And uh, we've got two new people in very high positions at the agency. And uh, the first one I couldn't be happier about. And that was uh, NASA has a new chief scientist and he goes by the name of Jim Green. If that sounds familiar, you may recognize him from pretty much all of NASA's major missions within the last 12 years. He has been a major part of those as the director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA headquarters, which he had for 12 years. In doing so, he helped bring to the public and usher in the golden age things like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity, New Horizons, which, again, studied Pluto, You've probably seen him in all the press conferences behind it. He's the man on TV taking all of this, making sure this all happens behind the scenes, and then bringing it to us in the simplest way possible so we can understand, holy cow, we're learning so much about these planets. And now he's the chief scientist. Yeah, I, I couldn't think of anybody better or more more qualified for that that particular position. And I believe um, I believe May 1st was actually uh, uh, Dr. Green's first day in the new job. So, uh, a, again, congratulations. And the agency couldn't be in much more better hands than uh, than Jim Green uh, with the uh, with the leading up the charge uh, as the uh, the agency's chief scientist. Uh, it was a well-deserved call. And uh, I'm 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 wishing uh, Dr. Green all the best in his uh, new position. And uh, I know it's uh, you know the agency is and again the agency is really going to be in great hands there. It's the perfect promotion from within. It yeah. truly is. He's done such an amazing job. We have him to thank for so many missions that we love dearly. And you know I saw him. I've seen him speak a bunch of times. And one of the things that always blows my mind is. They're all, uh, most of these people who have positions like his have a lot of passion for what they do. Obviously, that's how they got there. But he has this deep, warm love for it that you see drummed out of a lot of people, and he still has it. And that's a really special thing to have in that position, especially within so much bureaucracy. And it's just, it makes me so happy to see him there. Yeah, and, and he, he's been a champion of, of trying to get information out there through other means and so on. I mean, he's he's a big champ. He, he was, he's still a, a tremendous champion for the uh, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory Solar System Ambassador Program. He, he thinks mm-hmm. that he thinks the world of that program and and public involvement in things like decadal surveys and yes. stuff. Yes, yeah, he he definitely wants to make sure that 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 the public understands what NASA is doing and why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. And and that's why I'm saying we're we're in we're in really good hands with uh, with Dr. Green at the helm as far as the science director is concerned, and and wishing him all the best. Absolutely. And again, if you haven't heard him speak, he's he's spectacular to listen to. 
and a great person for the job. And again, we all couldn't be happier. And uh, he, as you mentioned, begun May 1st, and he is succeeding Gail Allen, who was the acting uh, chief scientist since 2016, and who is now that he's in charge, getting to retire after more than 30 years of service. Yep, and uh, Ellen Stofan, who is the um, previous individual, she is over at the, uh, she's now the director of the National Air and Space Museum. And also earlier in April, NASA officially got its newest administrator. Jim Bridenstine was confirmed 50 to 49 as NASA's next admin. Uh, admittedly, that is rare. Uh, most of these confirmations have been unanimous. This one going right along party lines. Uh, but Jim Bridenstine, in doing that, is the third person to not have a direct science background in the lead and is also the first member of Congress to hold the administrator job. Previously, he has worked in science museums. Uh, he ran one of them at one point. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, he had quite the confirmation hearing last year. And if you mm. want to hear about that, we discussed that in depth last season and uh it's we don't have time to get into it but it was just one of the worst hearings for to understand a candidate yeah so I'm, I'm just getting a migraine thinking about that particular uh confirmation hearing it had you know here here you had a uh, an individual that was going to be leading that, that you wanted to talk to to lead an agency that is is really you know to to use uh the jpl uh axum you know to dare mighty things but it was hurting it was going through some phases and so on it's going through a major transition now and uh he's going to be inheriting an agency that you know is has, has got its problems but it's also got its got its successes and the idea is that the folks in congress really really should have said okay here are the problems facing the agency how are you going to solve them sir um, they didn't exactly do that during that confirmation hearing. And we'll just, you know, if, if you really want to go ahead and find out what happened, you can look it up out there on YouTube or you can hear our particular episode about that at that time. A lot of the criticisms surrounding Jim Bridenstine have been he isn't, a you know, an individual science. He's a former, he's, he's a politician, really. And a lot of people really thought that that was a minus. I'm going to just alert folk over to uh, uh, Jim Webb, the administrator during the uh, the onset of Apollo, and how he essentially got all of that squared away. Now, believe me, I am not talking, I'm not comparing Bridenstine to James Webb, not yet. I am taking um, a sort of wait-and-see approach uh, to his nomination. I, I Just having a politician in there kind of kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit, but um, he did strike the right tone uh, coming into the job. I believe uh, one of his first um, first Twitter posts, and he's been fairly active on Twitter. So if you guys want to want to want to follow him, go ahead and, and just look him up and and see there because uh, he has been been really well, you know, kind of prolific out there given given the uh, uh, his stature right now. But um, one of his first Twitter posts was he was going to try to go ahead and, you know, that he felt it was an honor to, to be named. And 
Uh, he was taking on a he knew he was taking on a tremendous responsibility, and he wanted to go ahead and maintain NASA's preeminence in space. You know, he didn't do the you know you know make America great again nonsense and all this other stuff. He he really really kept a, a, a an, an even keel about the whole thing, and I think that's a that's an indicator of of where where his head is right now. I think he's just trying to, right now, I think he's probably just trying to wrap his head around the job. And, um, uh, cause it's, it's a daunting task and that, that he's inherited. And, uh, uh, I, again, I, I know that there are some people with some very strong feelings about, about the gentleman, but I will say I'm, I'm not going to go ahead and start throwing stones just yet because he hasn't really done anything. So I'm going to reserve my judgment. I'm going to be cautiously optimistic. I am going to watch the. We're going to keep an eye on this from afar, and uh, we're going to see what happens. And believe me, if, if if things go well, hey, we will applaud the, applaud him right and left. Uh, but if things don't, we'll have to go ahead and say, hey, you know, we're we're off the rails here a little bit, and hopefully, hopefully, point him in the right direction. So. Um, you know, we'll see. Yeah, because one of the big things with NASA is that primarily it has been very non-political, apolitical. And uh, from what it sounds like, he's doing his best to do that. And again, uh, his Twitter account is just his name, at Jim Bridenstine. And as you mentioned, some of his first posts after he took the job, besides thanking everyone, at feeling he's part of the family, thanking Acting Administrator Robert Lightfoot before him, uh, he said... Quote, I will do my best to serve our storied agency to the utmost of my abilities as we reach for new heights and reveal the unknown for the benefits of humankind. NASA represents the best of our country. We lead, we discover, we pioneer, and we inspire. I look forward to our journey together. And that's the kind of message I personally think that NASA needs. Now, the big thing is going to be how does funding go in terms of towards Earth science and how does funding go and opinions go towards climate change and towards manned spaceflight and towards the future of ISS and how that gets spread out. But I'm highly encouraged, especially after all the mess that we heard during the confirmation hearing. Hearing that just gives me a little bit of hope. And in case you're wondering, by the way, our opinions on it, you can hear those back on episode 914. Yeah, so to, to just echo uh, a couple things you were saying, keep in mind too, though, that um, the administrator is just simply an arm of the White House in this instance. Um, he, the administrator gets, gets a budget. He can make recommendations to the White House of, of, of what he or she thinks the agency's budget should look like, but then it still has to go through Congress and so on and so forth. But the administrator needs to work within the confines of the budget that he, he or she is given. And if certain things aren't there, they aren't there. This is the agency that uh, Jim Bridenstine's kind of inherited and he needs to go back and um try to try to fix this it's going to be a challenge and uh i i do not envy his task neither do i but i'm excited to see where he goes i've had the good fortune of meeting all the nasa administrators since sean o'keefe and uh i hope to do the same and get to talk with him and hear his philosophy and uh We'll see. It's been, you know, after uh, eight years with Charlie Bolden, it's going to be interesting to see change. But then again, change can always be difficult, but it can always be great. So we mentioned that there's still one more launch that we were going to get to, and that is going to Mars. And that is the Mars InSight mission, which will help look 
underneath the surface of Mars. It is not a rover, it is a lander. But the InSight lander is scheduled to launch this coming Saturday, May 5th, aboard an Atlas V rocket out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, not too far from where it was built and where it'll be monitored at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Uh, that mission, I know uh, Gene and Cassie, you guys both got a little bit of information on it because also this past weekend was the Northeast Astronomy Forum, or NEF, held just outside New York City. Yeah, so your Tim Gasparini, who is uh, Lockheed, was with Lockheed Martin, he was um, over there. He, he was one of the principals around um, the construction of uh, the uh, uh, InSight lander, and he gave a presentation over there on um, what the lander is all about and uh, how it's, it's going to operate and, and so on and so forth. And we've got some... Uh, cuts we can go ahead and and uh, share with you first. I, I'll I'll go ahead and um, talk a little bit about uh, what he first led off with, which was essentially um, what the mission is really really all about and what this is uh, really going to going to happen and what's going to happen. So, um, sorry, let's go ahead and play that that cut, please. The purpose of Insight is to um, is to go and learn about the formation of terrestrial planets. Even though we're going to Mars and we're gonna learn a lot of things about Mars, it's about learning about the formation of terrestrial planets through um, seismology, through geodesy, and then through heat flow. So um, the instruments on InSight, there's, there's um, a number of instruments that, this, that the lander will bring to the surface of, the surface of Mars. Um, the first one is a seismometer, which um, will measure is an incredibly sensitive seismometer. Um, it can measure the effects of the wind on the surface. It can also measure the um, impacts on the surface, and it can also measure any of the volcanism that takes place. In fact, it's so sensitive that it can measure deflections of the planet close to the size of a hydrogen atom. And so we have to take some very special precautions to actually protect the seismometer and measure the environment around the seismometer so that that information can be removed um, from the measurements that are taking place. Um, we also have what we call is the HP3 instrument, which is a heat flow probe. And it takes, a, it takes what we call the mole and burrows down five meters into the, sur into the surface of the planet. And that, that, uh, that, uh, the connection between the mole and the spacecraft has temperature sensors and it has um, heat sources so that we can send out pulses of heat, we can measure the response of the, uh, of the, of the, the, rock, the rock face or the surface, of the surface of the planet there, and we can understand what the heat flow properties of, um, of Mars are. So we basically position the, uh, the, mole, the mole on the surface and it will hammer itself down five meters into the ground. It's a fairly, you know, when you look at it, it's a fairly elegant device that, um, that they have built. The, uh, the third instrument that we have is actually not an instrument at all, but it's using the communication system on the satellite. Um, what we do is we measure Doppler response of the, uh, of the satellite relative to the Earth. So we'll measure the motion of the location of the satellite relative to the Earth within a couple of centimeters. And what that will tell us is that will tell us how the planet wobbles as it's going around in its orbit and in its rotation. And we can use that to determine um, the content and uh, mass of, of Mars and help us to understand um, what the interior structure of, the, of Mars looks like. 
And the way that this works is we'll get to Mars and we will deploy the, uh, the, the seismometer on the surface of Mars and um, we'll release the cabling so that it's um, not flapping in the wind. We'll come back and there's a uh, wind cover, a wind shield that actually goes over the, the seismometer to protect the seismometer from the wind. We'll come back, we'll pick up the HP3 or the, uh, the heat probe and we will put that down on the surface and then it will start hammering down into, into Mars. This thing too has is, is got some interesting little aspects to it um, as far as uh, communications are concerned. There are two uh, CubeSats that are being sent to, to Mars along with the lander. And the reason for this is, well, you, you've got a couple of, uh, a couple of our other land, uh, orbiters out there that are getting a little long in the tooth, and one of them is just isn't flat-out designed to, uh, to go ahead and deal with uh, some of the, the data loads. In fact, the CubeSats that are going uh, will go ahead and help get the, uh, the hey, I'm here message over a lot quicker. So uh, why don't we let Mr. Gasparini talk about those? And so JPL is developing these uh, CubeSats called Marco. And normally when we come into the surface, when we come into Mars for um, entry, descent, and landing, um, the orbiters that are at Mars, either Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter or Mars Odyssey, will um, collect the data and relay it back. The uh, Mars, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter does not have the capability to pipe the data back to Mars, so we collect it and then replay it. And so you have to wait an hour or so to find out if you actually were successful at landing, which is a little nail biting. Um, so the purpose of uh, the Marco is Marco, the Marco's uh, CubeSats are gonna go to Mars and they're going to relay the data um, from the, the lander as we come in and then send it back to the Earth so we'll have near real time, um, well, one way lifetime uh, data for, for Mars entry. So yeah, that, that's the whole reason why we're, we're sending these CubeSats along. Again, it, it'll, it'll cut down on, on the communication time and also uh, get abilities going. I'm, I'm wondering too, Sawyer, if, um, if we're gonna actually even, even continue to pursue that kind of thing going forward with Mars exploration, sort of bringing our own communication satellites with us. So it, it, the, I, I thought that was kind of a neat way to, to, to solve the problem. So we get there, and um, what is that all, all about? So why don't we go ahead and, and let Mr. Gasparini talk about uh, the mission operations itself and uh, who's running it. I believe this is, again, a, a, a JPL critter. And uh, uh, this, this will go ahead and tell you a little bit about uh, mission operations and what's supposed to happen and, and so on. So uh, let's, let's run that, Sawyer. The principal investigator is Bruce Banner at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and they are also responsible for um, running the mission. Um, Lockheed Martin builds the satellite, and we do mission operations up until the time that we get to Mars, and then the Science Operations Center takes over those. The, uh, the seismometer is built by CNES, the French, or the French Space Agency. The um, heat probe is built by the Germans. So this is, a, this is an international program that we're, that we're doing. In November, we will get to, get to Mars, and the cruise duration depends on when we launch. It's a fixed arrival date at Mars, so we, we, get, there, we get there in November, no matter when we launch. And um, so it's about 170 to 200 days of, uh, of travel. And our entry velocity when we get there is about 5.6 kilometers per second. 
about 12,500 miles an hour. So we slow ourselves down from 12,000 miles an hour to, um, to zero. And there's basically four ways that you can take out energy um, when you get to Mars. You can use a heat shield, which we do. You can use a parachute, which we do. You can use um, a uh, engine thrust. So we will do all three of those to get ourselves down to the surface of Mars. The fourth way is actually use the planet to stop yourself, and we try to do that very sparingly. <laughs> and so the, uh, the legs actually on the, on the lander have, um, have uh, energy absorption devices, so the last little bit of energy is taken out by the legs as we land on the surface of Mars. So yeah, I don't know if you remember, Gene. Were you out there for uh, Space Fest when it was in Pasadena? Yeah, I was. Um... So I don't know if you remember, but we got a tour of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, a little bit before it started, or at least some of us did. And while we were out there, we got to go inside the control room where all the landings will take place, where they'll be monitoring the mission. Uh, and the other cool thing is while I was there... Uh, they were doing some testing in one of the chambers, and in it, they were testing out something with this lander that was scheduled to launch in like five, six years later, and it was called Mars Insight. Mm -hmm. Were you uh, were you at that tour? Or? Unfortunately, no, I wasn't. Uh, I I didn't get in on it because I was uh, I was a little late to that party, <laughs> so I, I I didn't know. I I got in toward the toward the tail end, and and unfortunately, I missed it. So. Um, but it was, but still, I know there's a few of our friends out there, myself included, that actually got to see not only where they're going to watch the landing from and where all the excitement's going to take place and all the time of terror, but uh, getting to actually see it in the test bed, them working on the actual lander, and here we are now in 2018 with it getting ready to go in a few days. Yeah, to, to let folks know, Insight is based on the uh, uh, Mars Phoenix lander. So it, it's not exactly an identical clone, but the design is the same, which means we're not going to do the the uh, the sky crane or anything like that. It's it's going to be a, a propulsive landing, um, you know, with the aeroshell, and uh, uh, we'll just have to, you know, just it, it's still going to be a lot of nail biting going on and and all that, and but uh, uh, it will eventually call home. Now the neat thing about um, about Insight is it's going to be landing at along the equator rather than where uh, Phoenix was up on the uh, up near the pole, which means, by the way, you are going to get a lot of light coming down on that lander to go ahead and operate. So its its lifetime is going to be a lot longer than its predecessor. If I recall exactly during the discussion on that, I think somebody did ask Tim Gasparini about uh, about putting you know any kind of like wipers or any type of thing on those those uh, those solar panels, and uh, I believe they were just I believe the the panels themselves are, are, are just too fragile to support something like that. Um, but I, you know, it's just one of those things, but I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a very interesting question. Mr. Gasparini went ahead and, and uh, described a little bit more about the commissioning phase for insight. It's going to take about what I, I believe about, he said about three months to fully go ahead and get the spacecraft commissioned up to the point where, where it can do science reliably. And uh, he described what they're going to do, um, during that period of time or what Lockheed Martin is first going to do to make sure the spacecraft is healthy and then throw the keys to the scientists. But once once we're in the swing of things, look out. Uh, you have that uh, uh, that impactor that's going to go ahead and take a look and, and, and essentially try to find out if there's really anything going on on Mars, something like a Mars quake. 
And uh, it's the first time we're actually looking for Mars quakes on Mars. Uh, this would basically tell us, tell us if there's any tectonic activity really, really going on. So, well, you know, it, it's, it, we're going to be answering a lot more questions about Mars thanks to this, this, this little lander. And again, this is all part and parcel of eventually us getting there. Um, a lot of people think that because we're kind of lunar-centric right now, or at least it looks like we're lunar-centric right now, that we've actually kissed Mars goodbye. We have not, not by, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and so that, that the, the, the drive for uh, the red planet is still alive. It's just we are we're taking a methodical approach, and which was really still, I think, part of that journey to Mars portfolio anyway, if I recall, because they did talk, if I remember, the, the journey to Mars talked about, you know, cislunar operations first and trying to go ahead and see if we've got the right equipment and the right spacecraft um, for the journey and then uh, uh, going ahead and building some sort of uh, cislunar, uh, uh, cislunar presence and then from that point going on to Mars. So um, the uh, new uh, cislunar uh, uh, gateway or whatever they're calling it now, I mean, I, I'm, for, forgive me, I know they've changed the name. Uh, it just used to be called the Deep Space Gateway. Now it's they've got some other longer name for it. But um, that is going to be essentially the, the hub of the, uh, the operation. And back to Mars, uh, this is just uh, one spacecraft uh, trying to figure out what's what's going on and just it's another uh uh you know arrow in the quiver uh for uh for mars to find out what really is going on there ahead of us we still have one rover that that's uh that's waiting in the wings and that's the mars 2020 rover that is still getting ready for uh for liftoff that year and uh again that that rover is based on um based on the curiosity rover that's up there now uh, but it will be a little bit more robust, and, and hopefully uh, we'll have a, a component on board the lander where uh, we could have a sample return, possibly. Keep an eye out. But uh, again, um, it, it's, it's going to be quite a mission. Exactly. And again, it is just kind of interesting to note the fact that in terms of launches, uh, it was an Atlas 541 that launched Curiosity. Thank you. And, and that was out of, you know, Florida. And then you've got this one, which is an Atlas 401, which is a little less powerful, but still get the job done to get you all the way to Mars. And that was launching out of California. Just interesting, again, the versatility of the rockets, the versatility of the launches, and the fact that <laughs> we've got the power to get to Mars, and we're going to do it. Yep. Yeah, so uh, Cassie, you and Gene, you were both at NEF, right? That is correct, sir. Were there any talks that both of you guys got to go to that you thought were really interesting, or...? I'll admit, I didn't go to a lot of talks this year. I spent most of my time on the floor, um, talking to people, meeting people. Um, and so uh, I, I went to one talk each day, actually. <laughs> well, I know I was a little jealous because there was one talk that I really wanted to hear because I had uh, just finished reading the book, Bringing Columbia Home. And that was something I was really interested in. The book was fantastic. And I know the authors of that book were there. And uh, you guys were both at that talk, right? Yes, sir. That's correct. We both. I, I, I want to hear both of your opinions on this. I know, Gene, you got some sound from it, and then I, I just want opinions, thoughts, what you heard from it, because that's the one talk I was super jealous that I really missed. 
I can tell you right off the bat the thing that struck me the most that I didn't know. I haven't read the book, um, and I'll admit, I don't know as much about Columbia as I probably should. I mean, the aftermath in particular, the actual incident I know a lot about, but I really don't know much about the aftermath, which I uh, believe is what the book is largely about, and it's what the talk was largely about. And so um, what really struck me about the whole story of the search was that the astronauts wanted to be out there searching for their colleagues and friends, and NASA wasn't sure about letting them. They decided to let them go out. They could each go out for three days maximum, and then they had to come back and go into psychological counseling. And these are people who absolutely nobody expected to be out there or particularly wanted to be out there. <laughs> you know, they're, they're rather valuable. <laughs> and um, But they let them go out, and it meant the world to them to go out and find the bodies of their colleagues. And I just, that, that was actually, right off the bat, that was the number one thing I think of when I think back to that talk. It had me kind of in tears, and it actually... Um, it kind of reminded me, I hate to bring this up, but it kind of reminded me of Ground Zero in New York. Um, I was a volunteer who went down there soon after before they kicked all the like local people out and allowed only people who were members of like relief groups to come down and, and stuff. And obviously you couldn't volunteer to search. That was the professional's job, but we were just like the support crew. And it meant the world to be there with people who meant something to you personally, even if you didn't know whether or not you knew anybody who was down there yet, um, because people were still finding out about, you know, friends and stuff and who might be there and whether they were safe or not. And so you just kind of like, I, I, I feel like I really related to the astronauts and how they were feeling about this. And it was really like, it just touched me deep down to the bottom of, I don't know, my heart, my soul. Um, and, and the, the strength of the astronaut corps, how much they mean to each other, that this meant so much that they fought for the right to go look for bodies. <laughs> it just, it speaks volumes to the experience of being an astronaut and how much, um, camaraderie and respect and honor there is between them. That's amazing to hear. And again, they talk a lot about it in the book, but I could just imagine hearing these stories again, these people were just farmers, their local people that opened up their businesses to help, all these people that got off from work and just wanted oh. to just go out and help. The images of the, I think, Gene, I think he said it was the local VFW, right? Like some of some of the like women in town were like, we got to feed all these people. And they just opened up the VFW, I think it was. And they cooked for like anybody who was down there searching. And so you had all these people from NASA and from various groups and then just the locals and they were all just eating together at this VFW hall and, and there were like no restaurants. It's this rural area. There's nothing there. And the images they were showing of all of them eating together and again, the camaraderie. It's, you find an incredible amount of humanity in tragedy. That's been my experience, having experienced a few of them. And um, it was a really beautiful thing of the human experience just all these people who would never ever ever meet each other in any other way sitting down to eat dinner together you know one of the things that um both authors uh mike leinbach and jonathan ward had mentioned was that their approach with with this particular book and 
initially what Mike Leinbach was going to do was talk about his own experiences over there. And then it just occurred to him, Cassie, what you were saying before, um, it was the unsung heroes of the whole thing, which was essentially the people of, uh, of East Texas that uh, came together and, and really, really were, were pitching in the first responders, everyone, with trying to recover both the crew and as much of the orbiter as they can find. And in the final analysis, uh, both Jonathan Ward and Mike Lombach agreed that these individuals who really had nothing to do with the space program probably rescued the International Space Station. Yeah, and, and they were like the real heroes of the story. I mean, they could have just not gotten involved. They could have not been so welcoming. They could have, they could have approached this entirely differently. But, you know, this is one of the reasons that um, no matter how frustrated I get with humanity, sometimes I ultimately love it so much. And it's the only thing I truly have faith in because this is what happens. We, 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 we share tragedy in, in a way that we share very little else. And the way that they took ownership of this situation, just these farmers, these normal people, even down to the women who cooked for everybody. Um, the way they took ownership of the whole thing. It's just, it's beautiful. There's a lot of um, national pride and human pride and humanity to it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I personally love about space is that it's, and I'm always trying to harp on to people, especially people who are concerned that we spend too much money on space, is how freaking human it is. <laughs> Even when you're not talking human spaceflight. And the story of Columbia, when it comes right down to it, it's not, it's a, a story of humans, not just the ones that we lost, but the ones who, you know, survived. The ones who were friends with them, who worked with them, who were on the ground, the ones who, you know... I, I think there's a lot of people at NASA that day who would have traded places with anyone on there um, to have those people be safe. You know, it, there's a family thing to it that is is just it's incredibly human. And that's why space is not cold. It's not foreign. It's 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 totally us. It's you know. And it's easy to forget that sometimes. And sometimes it takes a moment of tragedy to remember and the story of tragedy and the story of rebuilding after tragedy, which is probably the most common story in human existence, really, is rebuilding after tragedy. Um, it's, uh, you know, it really, the book's called Bring Columbia Home, but I think it really brings the humanity home. And I think that's very important. I think that's important as we move forward. Um, it's important to remember that, that it, we like to say we don't just, put money into rockets and send it to space. We spend it on things like humans and jobs. <laughs> it's important to remember that this stuff, it, it carries the hopes and dreams of literally tens of thousands of people who worked on it and millions of people beyond. And when um, something goes wrong, it affects everybody. And that's incredible. One of the things too, Sawyer, that uh, uh, Mike Leinbach was talking about was not only the mission, but also the uh, reentry day, which, you know, sadly, how that all went down. And the idea was nobody knew where the devil the orbiter was. Mike Leinbach was talking about uh, one of his, his great honors, and, and he does consider this a great honor, is to welcome the crew back. 
and um, he he's usually right there um, on the tarmac and and ready to go ahead and and you know pat everybody on the back you know and get everybody off of there and and all the smiles and and all of that unfortunately for that day in on uh, February 1st of uh, 2003 it just was not to be and um, he kept on looking at the makeshift you know countdown clock for for a touchdown and he's going in the back of his head thinking okay you know we haven't heard the sonic booms where's the orbiter and he's counting down to like the three minutes it takes to come you know down onto the tarmac and that has come and gone and you know that sinking feeling starts happening you know where is this machine and for for the longest time nobody knew where where the orbiter was uh until the pagers started going off and then people kind of understood what what the what the situation was but uh, he also described too um what was going on while he was standing there in florida waiting for uh, the orbiter to return and over the skies in East Texas um, there was something just unprecedented happening where all 800,000 pieces of Columbia after it had broken broken apart were traveling at a speed of Mach 2 and going subsonic above the skies of East Texas now picture that just for a second you've got all of these pieces coming down and traveling at Mach 2 and then breaking the sound barrier. So you've all got all these these huge, you know, these explosions going off. And nobody on the ground really knew what was going on. Everybody thought that, you know, possibly I'm sorry, but not not to like make light of this, but what a like real life chicken little moment. Like it's so impossible to imagine. And I don't mean that in a funny way. I mean that in the most serious way. What, like, what a chicken little come to well, life, you know, thing you can't can't even imagine. Well, the idea too was um, you had not only you know that happening. Everybody thought that maybe the the transcontinental oil pipeline had 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 blown and was a victim of uh, of possibly sabotage or worse. Um, some individuals actually thought maybe that, that Houston was under attack, um, because again, this was 2003, um, this was just a few, you know, a few months after 9-11, uh, but those, those explosions were heard from East Texas all the way to the Louisiana border, and it was just something really, really unprecedented. Everybody thought even New Orleans might have been under, under a nuclear attack. These were the, these were the things that were going on. Nobody really knew that 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 the orbiter was coming home and nobody even expected what was what was happening but it was just the tragedy was just you know really really compounded by by a bunch of uh, confused individuals on the ground it, it it could have been a lot worse had columbia entered a little later or a little a little later i think the pieces of the orbiter would have come down right over houston or right even even in and around the johnson space flight center so it, it would have been, the, the tragedy would have been, been even more compounded. They actually mentioned that they were really concerned that something might have hit someone or could have hit someone when they realized what was going on. And I can't, I mean, how terrifying would that That's have been? That's exactly what I was about to say. The good news, if you want to call it that, is the fact that nobody was injured really on the ground. There was some, there was some minor property damage here and there, but there was nobody on the ground that was hurt by any of the, any of the falling debris. 
it, it's really astounding. And like you said, if it had been over Houston, it would have been, an, it, it could have been an entirely different story. We, we've, we've been really, really lucky when it comes to things coming back to Earth that weren't supposed, in ways they weren't supposed to, in that sense. And the other thing, though, if I remember correctly from the book, is while nothing came down from the orbiter, I know there were still people that were injured and a few people that were lost in a helicopter crash during the actual recovery yes. efforts, though. Yes, but. we should acknowledge that because there were people injured in the search efforts. There were actually individuals killed in that. As well as a group of a group from a helicopter who unfortunately perished yeah. in the search. Um, uh, the the all in all though as as Cassie you pointed out it was a it was a really really uplifting you know still even amongst this tragedy it was really really an uplifting uh, uh, an uplifting story. I found it immensely uplifting. Um, I mean I really did, but um, you know it, it's maybe it's my life experiences or something that you know you have to find the uplifting in these stories. But I'm really grateful that. I got to hear these stories from Mike Leinbach himself because even the way he seemed to see it had this positive, he found all this positivity in this story, in this, in the aftermath. And especially in, um, you know, the efforts to uh, get the lessons learned out there. Um, he found that, he clearly feels very positive about that, which he should. <laughs> Um, which, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about the Lessons Learned program because that is just, it's incredible. It's actually how you turn tragedy into something well, one, useful. Yeah, one of the things I did ask, by the way, was that very question, if you recall. And I, I asked, you know, what what lessons um, could you go ahead and give the folks that are building um, CST-100, uh, Crew Dragon, or even Orion at this point, and um, Sawyer, if you could go ahead and play that for me, please. I'd really, really appreciate it. Reusability is a lot tougher than you think. <laughs> Reusability is a lot tougher than you think because the human emotion, human human factors kick in and say that wasn't, it didn't, that problem, whatever that problem was, didn't get us in, in really trouble before. It's probably okay this time. That's going to be their biggest issue. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem that, that sneaks up on you. We had, I can't, I, can't begin to tell you how many times we disposition problems based on previous flight ration, previous flight history, even though we would stand up in front of all the people in a room like this and say, we never use flight history as rationale for problem resolution. We did it all the time. We did it with wires. We did it with the O-rings for challenging. We did it with the phone. We did it all the time. And so, and so people that are reusing spacecraft are, are they're good. You've got, to, you've got to treat every problem as a new problem and disposition it on its own, regardless of how you, how you solve that problem in the past. Remember, back before, before the shuttle, every astronaut that flew flew on a brand new spacecraft, That's right. brand new rocket. Shuttle changed all that, and, and, it's, and that change is still going on. I'm in favor of the change, but there are things that are going to get you if you're not careful. There you have it from a from the man that that had to deal with reusability over and over again. He basically indicated that reusability ain't that easy, and that's one of the things he you know he said there's there's always going to be something out there that's going to bite you. You can be really really careful, but there's always going to be something out there that's going to go ahead and and uh, and and bite you. 
You know, I really loved how he pointed out um, it's it's really easy these days for people. I don't know. I hear people kind of dismiss shuttle because there's all this new stuff coming down the pike. And OK, maybe I'm a bit biased. Obviously, I really love shuttle. <laughs> but um, I love that he pointed out that the shuttle, people talk about it being a test of life in low Earth orbit and all these things that it did do on a pragmatic level. But above and beyond that, it taught everybody, and that includes everybody working on this today, just how difficult reusability actually is and how challenging it is when you are dealing with things like actual human lives, especially to deal with the safety issues. And without shuttle, we wouldn't have all of this new reusable technology happening and we need to remember it's very important to remember that it was this huge step forward a lot of it's a lot of people think oh well you know it kept us in low earth orbit for a long time but the thing is we learned so many lessons from both the failures and the successes of the shuttle program that we're going to use in every single program going forward and that includes all these commercial programs and especially anybody who's trying to do anything reusable they owe a debt of gratitude to the space shuttle so let's never forget that right and i think the space shuttle proved that reusability is possible reusability is doable but it's a lot harder than anyone thought <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly that's what it seems like and again it's not always the cheapest with time nope. you know they thought no. the shuttle would become cheaper and it hadn't no. i'm hoping again that spacex and blue origin and these guys that are working on reusability find a way to make that dream a reality that the, that the shuttle never could, but it absolutely 100%. That's exactly what everything is. That's what human knowledge is, is like literally standing on the shoulders of prior technology, prior knowledge, and improving it. I mean, that's like every single thing we do, that's what we do. So let's hope that they actually pay a lot of attention to the lessons learned from every successful launch, from every failure, from everything in between. Um, just the everyday failures, the delays, the struggles, um, you know, let's, let's hope that they all continue to pay attention to the things that were learned back then, um, and, and employ that going forward because being that everything's branching off into different nations and different commercial companies, you know, for a long time, <laughs> a few governments were the only games in town. So you got to learn as many lessons as you can from what they did in their pioneering efforts. And the shuttle was a pioneering effort. It really is a global effort now. And that's that's what's amazing about it is you've got all the reusability. Again, you've got Rocket Lab that's working on their stuff now launching on New Zealand. You've got European companies getting in on it. UK's getting back in on it. And Gene, if I remember correctly, you were telling me that there's other, some odd countries like Kosovo getting in on it in a what? way. Well, in a way there, Sawyer, thank you. Um, before Neef uh, actually took off, no pun intended, um, through a, a friendship that I, I had struck up with a incredible young lady. Um, it, long story short, um, I was invited to uh, the Kosovo Embassy in, uh, in New York and to, uh, to attend a, uh, a, a short little seminar about uh, what, uh, this young lady's organization is doing, but also uh, to uh, gain some uh, other insights into what others are also doing. And um, this was uh, through um, the uh, telescope company Celestron, which was 
uh, sponsoring um, this young lady's uh, whole visit here uh, to uh, to the Northeast Astronomy Forum, and was actually featured on one of the talks. And uh, if you're not familiar with this uh, with this remarkable young lady, you soon will be. Trust me. Uh, her name is uh, Pranvera Hyseni. She is just a young up and coming astronomer that is. Um, uh, that that has decided that she's going to go ahead and take up the baton of astronomy outreach and in her country and it has really it it's it's sort of outgrown its presidium of what what this this little little organization that she started with just a handful of folks has been able to accomplish in a very very short period of time and um, she was one of the featured speakers at uh, at this presentation at the Kosovo Embassy that uh, I was asked to uh, to uh, to uh, come along and it was quite an eye-opener um, and I have to go ahead and, and thank both Ms. Iseni and also the uh, the folks over at the Kosovo Embassy for opening up their doors to us they were extraordinarily um, gracious and were just absolutely happy and thrilled that we were helping out one of their own um, and uh, uh, Pranvera went ahead and talked about um, how she started out and, and how this organization took flight and, and so on. And uh, I've got a little bit of a, I've got some bits and pieces from that uh, presentation that I've kind of strung together. Her, her, her entire comments were about maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes long, but um, we, we, I tried to narrow it down to about seven and um, to about seven minutes, but she basically tells the story and how this whole thing started. And I also have to give a tap, tip of the hat to the folks over at Charlie Bates um, Solar Astronomy Project, gentleman by the name of Stephen Ramson, who really, really got that ball rolling with this organization um, and really helped them out. And uh, basically took a lot of these you know, used telescopes over to, to Kosovo himself and delivered them himself for this for the use of this organization and uh they have their their next objective is to go ahead and build an observatory the first one in kosovo since uh um well since since after the war and there was a small one according to um uh, the presentation prior to uh prior to the conflict that occurred in the in the mid-1990s and unfortunately that lost it because of the conflict and uh so the mission here is to go ahead and try to rebuild that particular observatory and reestablish it for for the really the benefit of the entire country and uh this this young lady has been a been quite a quite a powerhouse in that area and she has really really gotten a lot of attention um in fact prior to leaving uh for for Neef, she got to go ahead to for the construction of, uh, of that observatory. So um, it, she's going to be a name to watch, at least in, in, um, in her country. And, and uh, uh, I, I would really, really suggest folks keep an eye on this young lady. She's going to be something else. I started this uh, uh, interest in astronomy uh, when I first saw a total solar eclipse in 1999, which already in Kosovo was a war time or the end of the war almost. So. What was actually this phenomenon that uh, made people actually panic because some of them didn't know what a solar eclipse is, 
Some of them thought that it's gonna be the end of the world and all this panicking stuff. But I remember very well when my grandfather took me and my family out there and trying to show us the eclipse through a bucket filled with water because we didn't have telescopes or eclipse, uh, you know, solar eclipses, like, uh, I mean, solar glasses, sorry, to look at that like we do nowadays. And then later on, I grew up and uh, I, somehow got interested in this, it captured my attention and I wanted to do um, astronomy, I wanted to learn about it, but we didn't have books because there are not too many Albanian books that you can learn astronomy from. Uh, I also wanted to become an astronomer when I grew up and I was getting interested what kind of school should I go at and what kind of bachelor degree should I uh, have to be an astronomer, which Actually, it's not going to happen in Kosovo because we don't have these departments. So we have the physics department and geography where we learn actually astronomy uh, in a semester. And that's why I am today studying geography um, because I want to be a planetary scientist in the future. This is in 2011 when I first received a gift, a small telescope, three-inch reflector from an astronomer from Croatia who actually I met in Facebook. He said he's going to give me a telescope. I never met this guy and I said, come on, this is not gonna work out. Somebody's giving me something I was dreaming for so long as a mm. gift. And then it happened. He met my dad in Skopje in Macedonia. He just gave a telescope. He was rushing to catch the train and, and that was it. And I was waiting awake all night for my telescope for my dad to come back and when I first got it in my hand it was like wow I catch the universe so I started getting it in my school this was my very first event with a telescope I took it in my class and I was kind of explaining how it works I still didn't know to use it myself at all very well but I was trying to do my best I also got a small solar filters and I could show students in different schools the solar spots and in every school I went, they loved it. The teachers, the kids, they loved what was there and what they were seeing. Also the moon and Saturn and other planets during the night sky, they loved it. So this made me like feel happy and uh, I saw that there are interested kids and people in astronomy. So I said, I gotta keep this going. I gotta do these outreach events. Suddenly on Facebook, um, I was doing advert uh, I was somehow promoting uh, my activities and trying to reach astronomers, international astronomers. And after a lot of astronomers, I also met Stephen Ramsden, who actually was here and gave us a speech. But what Stephen did for Kosovo, nobody else has ever done. And not just Stephen. But Stephen, through all these companies, Telestron, Skywatcher, Rainbow Symphony, and a lot more, he donated us equipment, solar telescopes, mounts, and then computers, cameras, and all these things that we never had. And I mean, it, it's something so much. And then other astronomers from across the world was donating things and solar glasses and everything just to help me out. And then after I got all these things and I was still doing activities, I decided to found this program, which it's a small group that I thought it's gonna work out and maybe other students are gonna join and we're gonna do something small like 
activities. But after I founded that, I was all alone. I was hoping that someday I'm gonna meet other students with the same interest. And then I think uh, two months later after I founded this organization in March, there was a partial solar eclipse that was going to occur and be visible from Kosovo. So I got all these telescopes, solar glasses. So I said, okay, let me go into the city and do some kind of activity. Maybe people will show up and we can view the eclipse in a safe way. And that's what I did actually. So you can't believe all these people showed up. So this was the very first activity in public and this happened. I mean, I never believed that all these people are gonna show up. This is the square in Pristina in the capital place. And it was difficult to manage because I just had a few friends, relatives, my family, and all these telescopes here, all this display, and all these people, not easy, not at all. But it was so much fun. People got to observe the eclipse, they got free glasses, and everything went so well. And then later, uh, I was meeting other students, I was meeting professors and everybody else. They liked it and they were always joining and we were growing up. Our group was being really big. And today, we do activities, we go into the schools and we go give lectures about general astronomy, about telescopes. We go out there, we set up the telescopes, we observe the sun in different wavelengths, and also we observe the planets and the stars and galaxies and everything that we have never had the opportunity to do that before. And this is also another big activity that we did in Prishnana uh, because of the Mercury transit. I was still kind of meeting astronomers and they always appreciated our activity. And after all these huge trips I had that year, which was 2016, Mr. Ramsden decided to come to Kosovo. And he didn't come alone, as you can see. He got a bunch of telescope and brought it to us. So. It was an amazing moment, you know? You, you got telescopes, you got everything. You just gotta keep working. And together we did activities in the different cities. Uh, the school session was actually off during the summer holidays, but we went out there in the public and people really appreciated what Stephen does and that he really helped us. And I really want to give Stephen a big thank you for helping Kosovo. next big step project that we're actually planning. As I told you, Kosovo doesn't have an observatory. So we are very much wanting to have this, and this is our plan, what we want to do. And uh, we can go to the next slide. We had a meeting just a few days before I left for America with the Minister of Innovation, and he said, yes, we're going to help with that. And then we had a meeting with the Ministry of Education. They said, yes, we're going to help with that. And then everybody wants to help with that. So this is what's going to be, you know? <laughs> Having that observatory is going to be really a big, giant leap for Kosovo. That's amazing. And that, that's what's always great about this, is a lot of people think of, and this may sound a little blunt, but a lot of think of people's think of space as the old white guy stuff. You know, they think of the men at NASA with the skinny ties and the pocket protectors, and now it's all the old white guys in charge and things like that, but... That's the beauty of it. It's not anymore. Is that the game is changing? Everyone's getting involved, and it's people of all, not just of different genders, but we're talking different ages. And now it's 
it's grown. I mean, people around the world have always been inspired by what NASA does, but to now see people, young people especially, acting on it, they're the future, and that's what's so inspiring with stories like well, you know, you have to remember a few things. First of all, I'd love to say, make a comment about Neef because I remember the first year that we all went to Neef, the three of us were there together as a group the first year, like we all went. And um, and it was like, you know, a group of space tweeps went to Neef together. And um, there were like basically no women other than me and our friend Evie who was with us who were like under 60 or not there just for their husbands. Remember that? Like we, we all thought that was a little weird. We were like, absolutely. We talked about heck, that. Yeah. Right? And this year, not only did I see lots of women who did not appear to be there with men, <laughs> but like, like of, of lots of ages, but lots of them were women there with their daughters. Like, lots of them. They were everywhere. And this is, like, we're talking about that year. I, I think that first year we all went together, that was 2010, correct? So we're talking about in eight years, it's gone from, like, us all going, where are all the women? To, like, the place was packed with them this year. And, I mean, you know, obviously there were lots of people of all kinds, and I'm so glad you pointed that out, Sawyer, but this was something that I particularly noticed this year because we actually even talked about it in those terms. Like, remember that first year? <laughs> um, that's a really, really short time to make such a big change. But it, but but at any rate, this was this was something new new for them. They, they, they just don't have the availability of a lot of these instruments there. And and this young lady's bringing it to them. And uh, uh, again, Celestron has also indicated that they will also support the uh, the observatory project. I believe when we when we left, they indicated that they are going to go ahead and and uh, donate a uh, uh, the major um, observation instrument for that facility once it's once it's in place and built. So uh, again, hats off to Celestron for that that as well. And this all wouldn't really be happening if it weren't for two people. Probably, you know, um, uh, Pranvera herself, and also for uh, Stephen Ramson over at the Charlie Bates uh, Solar Astronomy uh, Group. So again, um, if you want to go ahead and and you know Google Google that, go ahead and Google Charlie Bates and and uh, uh, see what they're up to. And uh, they're again, they're a nonprofit organization, and. Uh, Pranvera's organization is having a hard time getting funds in there because of the the bank situations and and things like that with um, with the country. The, the, the it's it's not really recognized. Some some institutions don't even recognize the country as as a country yet, and thus um, you know it's very very difficult to get uh, get funding in there. And I believe she can't even do a a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe project uh, based out of there because of the uh, the restrictions placed on on her because of the bank banking situation. So uh, the the organization is basically relying on folks like you know the Charlie Bates organization to try to see if uh, they can get uh, funding through them and 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 that that's essentially what's what's been happening. Well, I'm sorry I couldn't join you for this, Neef, because it sounded spectacular. But it's great to hear that it's growing, that the talks continue to be great, that more people continue to show and that it's becoming one of the go-to space events, even if it's in a gymnasium about 40 <laughs> minutes outside New York City. <laughs> as minute as it seems, again, it has a big impact. 
As I always like to point out at the Eugene Levy Fieldhouse. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot to cover in one month that we missed. So I hope you enjoyed this super jam-packed episode. And uh, just do want to point out one fun thing before we go, and that is uh, we talked about well, probably last year when we mentioned the Bepi Colombo mission that's coming up with its launch date as well. Uh, how with the name, how adorable it sounded that it needed some kind of cute little mascot. Well, someone may be listening to our show that works at ESA uh, because someone over there drew the most adorable, cute character called Bepi for Bepi Colombo on their Twitter account. And exa- it's better than I ever could have imagined in anything we were even pondering that first episode when we discussed it so absolutely go out there follow at isa underscore beppy and make sure you tweet at them how adorable their mascot is and that uh we at talking space 100,000 percent approve of it amen and fun fact even the instruments are getting in on it now too that's going above beyond what we ever could have expected i mean the japanese instrument that would be on board as well uh that has its own character and that is jaxa underscore mmo who there's a contest going on to get his nickname. (laughs) It's just better than I ever could have asked. It's adorable. And Issa gets major props for going with the super cute drawing and uh, making this a reality. But anyway, on that note, let's bring this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And a big thank you to our hosting service, uh, Podbean. They went ahead and decided that we were good enough to be one of their featured podcasts this week. Um, Also, I want to go ahead and thank everybody that's been subscribing on the uh, Podbean player. So please keep you know, giving us a, a thumbs up, keep, uh, you know, and, and leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else that you're listening to us. And uh, again, props to uh, Podbean, my, my sincere thanks. Absolutely. And thank you as well to the listeners, because we have now passed over 200,000 downloads through Podbean as well. And that's through Podbean there. So uh, thank you to everybody who's downloaded and listened to our 260 episodes and counting so far on that. Uh, and thank you all for joining us once again, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Uh, thanks so much for having me back. And one comment I have to add about Neef, um, since we didn't have time, essentially boils down to if you have the chance to see Dr. John Mather speak, just drop everything, <laughs> go, do it. Just go, just, just, we can't, it, it wasn't even worth talking about because you just had to be there. Just go, do it. <laughs> Whatever you got to do, be there. That's, that's my big comment on, uh, <laughs> from Neef this year. <laughs> Motion seconded. Um, that, and, and I'm going to have some, I think I'm going to have some really fun announcements coming soon. So, um, hopefully I'll be back on the show soon. Again, I really, I miss you guys. I miss all of you out there. I miss doing this. It, it's so much fun to catch up again. <laughs> so thanks for having me back. Well, we've missed you. You're always welcome back. And we're excited to announce uh, your big surprise when it's finally all ready to be released and announced and discussed. So. That's right. <laughs> You'll hear it here first, people. <laughs> well, that, if that's not a reason stay tuned nothing is but uh, after our short april break here we are back we've got more episodes coming up we've got more launches coming up to cover so we hope you'll stay with us we're going back to our normal schedule and we hope you'll stick with us until the next episode as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are
Columbia home, uh, which, Jake, you're not helping here. <laughs> and that was my day one talk. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah. Jakey, stop. Hey, buddy, stop, stop scratching. We can hear it on the mic. Thank you. <laughs> Three, two. I know it's getting right back to scratching. Three. There it is. Yeah. It's okay. What are you even, what are you even scratching at? That's a cake. Jakey, don't eat my cable. I need that. Oh like, boy, I'm 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 back to Oliver. He's also in the spot of the computer that's got the heat coming out of it right now. So yeah, of course. Oh, Jake, I'm trying to do a podcast here. Ah, oh, Mister. He doesn't care. <laughs> oh, I know. Hey, buddy. <laughs> buddy. I'm. Buddy.